Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Let's turn together in God's Word to Ruth chapter 2. And we continue our study uh, here of the book of Ruth. As we announced last Sunday, we are bringing what, has, what we started as our Sunday evening Bible study in the, in the book of Ruth now into the next few Sundays to help us kind of fast track, if you will, as we go through this book of Ruth. It's a, it's a marvelous book. And it tells us so much about not only the gospel and the foreshadowings of redemption and the gospel, but it also tells us so much about our amazing and loving God. I want us to look in Ruth chapter 2 this morning, and I want us to look at the statement found in verse 10. And then we will walk our way through, work our way through this text in an expositional style, working through Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 verse 10, so Ruth, she fell on her face and bowed to the ground and said to him, Boaz, why have I found grace? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What an amazing confessional statement that when we look at it, as we will look at it this morning at the beginning and then at the end, this is not only a statement of Ruth in amazement to the kindness of Boaz shown towards her. But brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the testimony of every believer. Why ha have I found grace in the eyes of God? Friends, as we look here in this story of the book of Ruth, it tells us so much about the heart of God. Again, there are many themes, a couple of themes, and we'll try to touch on them as we come through them. In fact, I'm preparing just one whole standalone message on just the, the providence of God as seen in the book of Ruth, just the, the proper understanding, the doctrine of the providence of God seen in this amazing book. But it answers the question for us, does God care? Does God care about your life? Does God care about my life? Does God care about the small things? Does God care about the middle things? Does God care about the big things? And I want to remind all of us this morning that God cares about all the things. And everything from God's perspective is small. And so, yes, He cares about the small things. And yes, He cares about the middle things. And yes, He cares about the great things. John Piper says this, God is at work providentially arranging the details of our lives to accomplish his purposes. The providence of God is the natural, normal outworking of his sovereignty in our everyday living, in our conversations, in our what we call chance meetings of people, in the direction of our steps. Scripture makes clear that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And also the stops are as well. God guides his children. Piper also goes on to say that at any moment in your life, God is doing a thousand things, 10,000 things, and I'm being superlative here, 20,000 things, whatever, tons of things, and you may be aware of two of them. Behold our God, church. As we look at this passage and look at this text, we are constantly, as we meditate and reflect upon what we see and how God guides and works and Ruth's life, this stranger from Moab, I want you to know that God's grace is extended towards you as his children as well. 
In fact, I would tell you that God has put this book of Ruth right here in, in the heart of the book of Judges and, and the prophets to, to show us just exactly a, a portrait, a, an example of how God works, not only in Ruth's life, but how he works in all of our lives. Now, as we look here at the introduction, I want to lay the groundwork here in chapter 2. And what we find here in verse 1, by way of introduction, is that the purpose of God is revealed. Notice there in verse 1, there, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. As we saw last Sunday night, here we are introduced to the guiding hand of God. Ruth is unaware of verse 1. This is the author's note. This is the Holy Spirit's note to us as the reader. Here we have the unseen hand of God revealing itself to men, showing us that two things here are introduced to us. First, we see Boaz, the person proper. We are introduced to this man named Boaz. And he's not just any man. He's not just any person. Boaz is the one man out of all of Bethlehem that God has ordained to marry Ruth. He is the kinsman redeemer. And we'll see more about that kinsman redeemer, the Goel, in, in, in chapter 3. And we will look at it extensively. It's not only the, the doctrine, if you will, of the kinsman redeemer, and, and the, the Goel and Leveret marriage, but we will make application exclusively to the doctrine of salvation for us as his people. But here we're simply introduced. Boaz is brought into the scene. And from this point on, Boaz becomes really the central dominant figure in the book of Ruth. We hang on with anticipation. In fact, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to read the book of Ruth in one sitting. Join me in our study of Ruth. It's short. It will only take you maybe 20 minutes. But to read it in one sitting, and maybe read it more than once, but when you read it in one sitting, you begin to enter into the way the author wants us to know, the way the Holy Spirit wants us to feel, there's an there's a anticipation. There's a Boaz, don't mess this up. There's a, to the other eligible bachelor, get out of the way. The other man, excuse me, that is also a possible kinsman redeemer. No, 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 no. We feel ourselves being wrapped up in this account. But here we're introduced to Boaz. And from here on, he becomes the, the central dominant figure in the book of Ruth. But here in chapter 2, we, what we want to note is how Boaz is beginning to be shown to us as a type of Christ. A type is, just to remind us all, is what we see in the Old Testament. It's something that foreshadows what will be consummated or fully revealed in the New. A type in our hermeneutic, our study of the scriptures, particularly as we use it here, a type of Christ simply points to something greater. And Boaz here is a type of Christ. He points us to something greater as the kinsman redeemer. He points us to something greater as we think about his redeeming act on behalf of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite proselyte, as we saw last Sunday. She is a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. She is a stranger to the men and women of Bethlehem. But friends, I want you to know this morning, she is no stranger to God. While she is a stranger to those who see her walking along the, the dirt paths, the trodden paths, on a hot day, looking for labor, looking for a way that she can support her, she, and Naomi, one thing we note here is that she is no stranger to God. In fact, she's an object of His redeeming love. Now, that's a phrase we hear a lot. We hear it, and sometimes maybe the phrase redeeming love 
it loses its meaning because we see it on book titles, we see it in movies, we see it in all kinds of things. But friends, I want you to know, right here rooted in the heart of Ruth is really the definition of redeeming love. And so she is no stranger to God. In chapter 3, when we look at it, we will see that God's judgment, of course, maybe the question is in your mind, God's judgment has already been pronounced on the Moabites as well as the Ammonites and others, even to the 10th generation. So maybe there's some tension if you're tracking with us. How can Ruth be shown such grace when God under the law has already pronounced judgment to these peoples? And we will answer that at the very beginning of of Ruth chapter 3 as we make the connection of both God's judgment being pronounced upon this people group and yet his sovereign electing grace upon Ruth. And how do these things work together? How do we make sense of them? So by way of introduction, we see the purpose of God here in verse 1. And then last Sunday night, we also saw, and I want to bring those of you who aren't here present, the program of God towards the poor. And very quickly, we'll we'll touch on this. What is the opportunity? How will God provide for Ruth? Well, here we see in the Old Testament the program of God. God makes provision for the orphan, the widow, The stranger. We've already seen in Matthew's gospel that as Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field, if you remember, on a Sabbath day. What did they do? They were hungry. And so as they're traveling from point A to point B in ministry, the Pharisees noticed that some of Jesus' disciples gleaned some heads of grain and began to eat on them. And they view that as work. They view that as violating the Sabbath. And we'll not revisit that context, but if you remember, God makes provision for the traveler, for the stranger. And here we see this even in more detail. And you don't have to turn there, but Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, we see this program of God instructed and and given fuller detail uh, to the people of God. And God tells his people, he says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape. Notice that comprehensiveness that God is prohibiting. Uh, You shall leave them, though, for the poor, for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Here we see the program of God, which reveals the heart of God uh, towards those who are in a flux. They're going through a hard time. They have lost a spouse. They have no roots. They're moving from point A to point B, and they just need help. They just need they don't, they don't not only not know the big questions of life and what's next and what's God's will for me, they're just trying to eat today. And here we see the heart of God in his program towards these individuals. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19 is one other passage I'll touch briefly on, which also where God gives the reason behind this program. And he wants to stir up in remembrance to his children that you once were poor. You once were slaves. You once were the poor, the stranger, the least of these. And I, God, I am that I am, had mercy upon you. Not because of anything that you did, Israel. God wants his people to know that his grace upon them is just that. It's undeserving. You add anything to grace and you ruin grace. Grace is our receiving what we do not deserve. And God wants his people to know that they are trophies of his grace through no boasting to them. 
God wants them to know that they are trophies of his grace, that he delighted to pour out his grace upon them, and he doesn't ever want them to forget that. And so that's why in this program, he wants them to have a heart that is bent towards who can I show kindness to as well? Who can I, in the same way that Ephesians 4, 32, or 28, I believe it is, where, uh, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? It's not easy. I don't want to. I don't like them. Well, that's not based upon any of that. In the same way that be kind to one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The gospel is at the root of all of our ethic, brothers and sisters in Christ. And God wants them to know, don't forget what I did for you. Deuteronomy 24, 19, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, God says, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in, in all the work of your hands. In other words, don't look at that sheaf that fell off the cart or what you forgot and think, that's money sitting there that I've got to go get to be a good steward. No, 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 no. The same God who gave all this to you will continue to provide for you. But hear the word of the Lord, he says, verse 20. He says, when you beat your olive trees, when you, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. Are you seeing a theme here? And you shall remember, here's what God says, that you were once a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. And so we ask and we see this principle that God is the provider for all his creatures. God certainly is the sovereign of the universe. But here particularly, in this articulation, in this description of what God's care is, we see that God is the provider and the sustainer of the poor. We get to simply have a role in it. We get to have a part in it. And God's people here, by following his plan, his program, get to have and be co-laborers with God. Well, church families, whenever we study God's word and read through God's word, whether it's in our personal time or together, we always want to ask this question, what does this tell me? What does this tell us about our God? Well, one of the names we know that he has among many, Naomi has already, we've already seen uh, Yahweh, his personal covenant name. We've already seen El Shaddai, where Naomi says, God has turned his almighty sovereign hand against me. That's his name, El Shaddai. But one of the things we see here, this is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Specifically, Jehovah Jireh points us to the fact that God provides plenteous blessings, and friends, this is not just his special love for his people, his own, his chosen, his bride, although there, that is certainly present as well. One thing you need to understand about God's character is that simply God provides. And I, I want to point this out to you, and I, I don't want to go too far down this path, but I just want to make this point, is that many times we just, this is completely lost, not only on us, but it's lost upon our world. Our world breathes God's air. God provides, doesn't he? Our world eats God's food. Our world experiences God's rain that we so have desperately needed. It didn't just rain on my yard this morning or my garden. It rained on everybody's. And same for you, right? We get that. Friends, what, the first thing what the, when we answer this question is what does this program, what is this text, what does this reveal to us about God is that he is tender-hearted and kind. Now, we are his light, aren't we? 
We are his bride. We have tasted of the goodness and kindness of God. Friends, may we not lose this in our personal witness and testimony. May we not be those who've been like Mephibosheth, invited to the table, and then we turn around and turn away the stranger who would desire a piece of bread from us. May we not be those who've experienced God's loving kindness and grace and yet show it to no one else. And we say, but they don't deserve it. Friend, you don't understand what grace is. Did you? Did you deserve forgiveness? Did you deserve God's grace? Did you deserve it? No, and Israel didn't deserve it. And yet God does not want them to forget it. In fact, as we think about making application to us, 1 John 3, 17, this is God by his law teaching his people to be like him. And in the New Testament, this is what John says. He says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, the context of 1 John is the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, the bride of Christ. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, John says, let us not love in word or in tongue. What is that? Profession. Vain sayings. Empty profession, Matthew 7. They say, Lord, Lord, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, I would encourage you to take note of that. Let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So this is an evidence of grace, that our hearts are soft and bent towards those that God brings into our sphere, not only as God's people Israel, but as we make application to us today as the church. We see this is God's plan. This is his program. So this law has been established to teach his people that they had been poor and needy and slaves and that they were at the mercy of God. And friends, all of us are needy. Those who own the field, as Boaz does, those who work in the field, and those who beg in the field, like Ruth. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and everything that is within it. Again, closing point here, all of us are at the mercy of God and His grace. Church, may we never forget it. As we look here and continue into Ruth chapter 2, I want to introduce point number 1. We, we, are, we see here, beginning in verse 2, Ruth's mission. Ruth's mission. Notice with me in verse 2. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, after him who? Whoever. She doesn't know. After every man, if you will, to use a literature term, the every man that we see, after him, after anyone, after every man wh whose sight I may find grace and, and favor. Here we see her desire is expressed from her heart. And as we continue to learn more about Ruth, we're not trying to overdo it. We're just going to simply point at what the scripture says to it. It reveals to us the beauty of grace at work in her heart. Here we see her desire that, that she is motivated to do something. And last Sunday night, we asked this question, what are we to do when we don't know what to do? Have you ever been there? <laughs> Have you ever found yourself between what we say, to use a, a, an example, uh, between a rock and a hard place? Sure you have. And yes, you're praying. Yes, you're seeking. But what do you do when you don't know what to do? 
And we gave this quote. We, we saw how the godly love by faith and they also live by faith. And one author says it like this. Our responsibility as believers is not only to trust in God's good sovereignty, but also to pursue the inseparable triumvirate of love, faith, and obedience as we walk through his life, this life. And what this author is saying, this one commentary is simply this, is that even when we don't know what to do, we can still act like Christ. We can still move in faith. We can still follow that inviolable triumvirate, inseparable triumvirate of love, faith, and obedience. And this is exactly what Ruth does. Ruth moved in faith and also in humility. And I want to take a note of that because there's the temptation of youth, isn't it? To, to be arrogant. There's a temptation in youth, excuse me, to say, move over, uh, okay, boomer, all right? I'm not trying to bring in too many cultural common vernacular, but I want to make a point. You get what I'm saying. We see this in social media. There's, this, there's this, a little bit of this, uh, at times, warranted. We get, that, we get that while the caricatures begin to kind of emerge in culture and society, but we don't see any of that in Ruth, and it's a beautiful thing. And I would just remind all of us is that you don't make a difference in your sphere by acting like the world. You make a difference by being led by Christ. So many young people today, like Ruth, are, are, are trying to chart their way. And they're, and they're simply saying, Lord, what do you have for me? Well, in all the things that God has for you, being arrogant and overly ambitious at the expense of the elderly or the expense of those around you is certainly not a part of God's will for you. I can say that for sure. And what we see here is that Ruth moves in faith and humility. She is a little, living example of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a passage I know that you know well. Answering the question, as we think about here Ruth's mission, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord. Not trust in self, as we saw last week. The world would tell us what? You do you. You be you. You go follow your heart. You, you go, man. You go, girl. You are, they take the image of God doctrine, that specialness created in the image of God, no doubt, but they make that a God in and of itself, as if that's a standalone concept from the sovereign who made us. Now listen, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. How does Ruth put one foot in front of the other? We've seen her confession in Ruth chapter 1. How do we explain this moving forward in faith? How do we explain this beautiful flower of the Spirit's planting of humility in her heart? Friends, she's a living example of resting completely and absolutely upon Yahweh, her God. She's not being wise in her own eyes. She's walking in the fear of the Lord. She's departed from her gods. She's made a complete separation from all that Moab is. And all of that strange heritage that is against God. Some people would hear this message or hear these messages and think, you know, they would think simply in simplistic terms of, of he has a problem with ethnicities or he has a problem with different types of cult. No, that, none of that's the point. The point here is that Moab is uniquely against God, under God's judgment. 
Moab blasphemes God, hates God's people. Their history is one of, of not helping God's people, but hurting God's people, trying to pronounce curses on God's people. Ruth has abandoned all of that. And notice in that last phrase, if you're just hearing me read it from Proverbs 3, 5, 7, excuse me, Proverbs 3, 7, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. How do we explain doing, walking by faith when we, how do we explain living in such a way that we don't know what to do and what emerges out of that grayness, out of that darkness, if you will, out of that cloud of despondency and despair? Well, we see Ruth as a living example of the scriptural truth found in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. When author says this, she realized that while there was some disadvantage to being poor, there was no disgrace in being poor. But there was some disgrace in being able to work and not being willing to work. And so here we're presented through Ruth with a, with a biblical ethic that Scripture makes clear. As we see, she begins to live by faith, walk by faith. Second Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone will not work, Paul says, neither shall they eat. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here we see Ruth as an unbeliever who's now tasting and seeing the goodness of God, moving forward by faith, willing, although poor and without resources, willing to go forth in faith and to work. Of all the whispers and rumors that are circulating about Ruth, and you've got to imagine as you enter into the humanity of this text, no doubt there are many. Have you seen Naomi's back? Have you seen who's with her? Have you, who is this girl? Who, who, is that one of her son's wives? Do you realize she's a, a stranger? She's a, she's a Moabite? You can imagine all the things that are gossiping about her, being circulating about her. And out of all those things, one of them is not true about Ruth. And it's that she is lazy. It's that she's a moocher. It's that she is not someone filled with character and reverence. Notice again with me verse 2. So Ruth the Moabite has said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and, and glean heads of grain. This is her mission. She wants to go find work and she knows something of obviously this provision that God has given. We see the desire that she has but also notice the respect, the deference that she shows towards Naomi. Verse 7, please let me glean and gather, not only towards Naomi we've seen, but also in verse 7, she goes to the foreman of Boaz's work crew and she requests, she says, please let me glean and work and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came, this foreman reports to Boaz, and she has continued from morning until now. And the idea here is we're in the middle of the day. Now, the context, let me remind you, uh, is Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, that in the days when the judges ruled. And what is that? It's when every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. And we see that Ruth shows reverence, not doing that which is right in her own eyes. We see a love that Ruth begins to show towards Naomi. That is a Christ-like love. It's a covenantal love. Here we have a stranger, a Gentile, a Moabite, being used of God to teach Naomi and to restore, if you will, through a human means, the spirit of Naomi, trust in God, faith in God. Ruth is being used of God to teach Naomi of God's love. She is a, a gift of God to Naomi. She's a gift of God's grace. 
And we see this respect that Ruth, no doubt, began to show to her mother-in-law when she was the daughter-in-law over in Moab. This is, I think, something that began way back then when life was at its best. And here we see life is at its worst. And how does Ruth treat her mother-in-law? The same. Friends, that is covenantal love. The steadfast, Psalm 63, verse 1 through 3, the steadfast love of the Lord, the love of Yahweh, endures forever. It is better than life. It's why the women of of Bethlehem will say to Naomi, Ruth is better to you than, than many sons. Truly she is. The New Testament principle that we see here is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive, Peter says, to one another. Now notice here, and be clothed in humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here we see this is happening to Ruth. God resists the proud. If Ruth and her, every man doing that which is right in, in their own eyes, if Ruth followed the, the way of the natural man, the way that would be consistent with her fallen nature, being a Moabite, I'll go show these Jews how it's done. It, it, here they do it this way, but over here, this is how we've done it. I'm going to show them a new thing, being ambitious and arrogant. But she doesn't. She is clothed with humility. Now, that's interesting language, isn't it? How, how, how do we become clothed in humility? Well, friends, we can't be clothed in humility until we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Peter says to those who are the bride of Christ, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but yet he gives grace to the humble. So action item here, Peter says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, the point is not being exalted in due time, but what we see here is in, in Peter's principle, New Testament principle is that God does exalt Ruth at the proper time. He has purposes for her. He has plans for her. I want to hit pause here and make application to us here today. How much different would the health of Grace Church be? And I don't mean this to be condemning. I'm just making application from the text. But let's, let's come before the mirror of God's Word. How much different and improved, we could say, would the culture of Grace Church be, and your home be, and your workplace be, if we were all clothed in humility? Now, if you're outside of Christ this morning, if you've not been saved and born again, don't view this as an action item in this sense. If this is not moral righteousness, I'm going to try to be more humble, and therefore God will bless me. Listen, that's impossible. And by the way, I would tell all of us, if you begin to focus on humility, it's gone. Humility is one of the rarest of God's graces. It's, it, is a, it is a fruit, it's a flower of the Spirit's planting. But the second you begin to emphasize it outside of what God's Word says about it, it disappears. It's that frail. It's that beautiful. It's something that is a byproduct of loving God and fearing God. But if you leave this message this morning thinking, I, I, I'm going to try to be more humble. No, 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 no. That, that's not the right goal. Friend, you need to be saved. Believer, you need to repent of your pride and your arrogance. You need to have a love that exceeds every other love, and that is a love of Christ. You need to humble yourself before the throne of grace. Philippians 2, if you're taking notes, is another great reference here. You need to esteem others as better than yourself. How? Because you have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, 5. Friends, may the Lord improve the culture of this church as we think about how we interact with one another, like Ruth's interacting with the older Naomi's. 
Sometimes, if we're honest, and I'm getting off track here, I will admit that, but just, just bear with me. I feel, I feel like this is an important point. Sometimes I think if we're honest, we don't know how to talk to other people in the body of Christ, don't we? It's just that way. Well, I want to bring us back to just this principle briefly, and it's simply this. Everyone in the family of God is either a mother or father figure, an elder, that's hype. They're older than us. They're like a mother or father in the faith. And if they're equal to or less than us, they're like a brother or sister in the faith. Now, that simplifies things, doesn't it? Maybe there's a, a younger brother in the church, and you say, I need to talk to him. I just don't know how to talk to him. Well, how would you talk to your brother? Now, if you have a brother... This is not to assume that everybody's earthly relationships are as they should be. But I will say this. If you have a brother, you don't live in fear of talking to your brother by the law of averages. If you have a sister, my sister's name is, is Leah. So just say, hey, Leah. Hey, Leah. She calls, she calls. Hey, Leah, what's going on? Like, it's not complicated. She's my sister. Your, your brother is your, your brother. Your, your dad is your dad. Your mom is your mom. Or as we see Boaz speaks to Ruth, we could also maybe add a son or daughter. If you have a uh, children, you, you, you treat them as a son or daughter in the faith. Paul views Timothy as a son in the faith, etc. Friends, if we viewed with eyes of grace this law of love and interacted with one another as we ought, with a spirit of humility, as we see Ruth exhibiting, how different it would make this culture, or we could say improve our culture here at Grace in our homes, and etc. as the Spirit makes application. I want us to notice here in her mission, we see Ruth's diligence, verse 7. So she came and notice what the former says about her. She came in the morning, and she has continued from the morning until now, speaking in this report to Boaz. Verse 11, notice what Boaz says to her. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel. Over in chapter 3, verse 11, again, we see our diligence displayed. For all the people of my town, Boaz says, know that, that you are a, a virtuous woman. How is it that they know she's a virtuous woman? It's simply by her work ethic. It's what they see. Virtuous woman. Notice that phrase. For all the people of my town know that, that you are a virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 language that we see here. She does not eat, Ruth, does not eat the bread of idleness. But she is diligent in the work that God provides for her. More about that in just a few moments. So first of all, Ruth's mission and we've pointed out this, this law, this principle of gleaning and the law of providence within this heading. Secondly, Ruth's meeting with Boaz. And there's a theme here in this second heading, and it's the law of grace. The law of grace. In verse 1, we've already pointed out how Boaz was introduced. And now we see him meet Ruth for the first time. And what we know here as we read this account is that Ruth's life is about to change forever. So in this encounter with Ruth, I want us to notice, first of all, the circumstances uh, underneath this meeting that she has. Verses 3 through 7. Notice there with me in the text. Then Ruth left, and she went, and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elalemic. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered to him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, Who was in charge of the reapers? Whose, excuse me, who was in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Here we see the conversation continues in verse 8. So then Boaz said to Ruth, he comes to her and begins the conversation. He says, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go on from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What a wonderful conversation. Now, there are elements that are here as we see Boaz's encounter with Ruth here. There are elements that we see that are the beginning of a blossoming natural romance. Boaz is an older man. He's an eligible bachelor. We've pointed that out. In verse 1, we see that Boaz is a, described as a mighty man of valor. He is also, some translations render, a mighty man, a man of wealth. But we'll say this. He's a normal man. He's a single man. And he not only knows the state of his flocks and of his fields, but he sees a beautiful young stranger and his eyes take note of her. And I want to point out in just a moment that this is ordinary habit and routine in one sense for Boaz. Boaz is doing what he does. He's he's a man of character, but it's in his ritual, normal routines that God begins to bring him and Ruth together. Now, he's a mighty man of valor and wealth, and I believe both renderings are accurate. There are constant threats from the Philistines, the, the, the neighbors just south of Bethlehem, who were constantly invading and marauding. And one commentator says this, men of wealth must also be men of war. We see this in the life of Abraham, don't we, church? If you remember, Abraham constantly has to kind of have his own reserve army, really ready to go to defend his family, to defend his flocks, even exercising all-out war on kings that are neighboring him. And I think such is the case, no different, uh, with, with Boaz. So there's no doubt that he is a, a man of immense wealth. He is a source of wealth and protection to those within his sphere of influence. And I emphasize that phrase, sphere of influence. I think that's why he says to Ruth, I can't protect you if you leave here. But if you're here, I know that I can provide for you, and I know that I can protect you. And by the way, in one sense, this is what he does. Then in a second sense, He's, he's providing grace, particularly to Ruth. We see, I think he goes above and beyond as he shows interest in her and provision for her than just ordinary routines that he has. So one thing that we see here in his manner, in his life, is that Boaz knows and recognizes that everything that he has is from the hand of the Lord. As we look at this mighty man of valor, this mighty man of wealth, what we do not see is a Nabal. You remember Nabal, the, the husband of Abigail, uh, who became the wife of David. We don't see Boaz, say, like a Nabal, who is a man of means, a man of resources, and a man of wealth, and an absolute jerk. When David, if you remember the story, when David and his men just simply need food, they need bread. They are famished. They're on the run. And David knows of this man of Nabal that he would actually have the means to care for his group. This is a 
Trust me, in the eyes of the future king of Israel, not a, a grace or a kindness that will be forgotten. But David's at a point where he cannot repay Nabal at this moment or, or even pay for the bread or the food that he and his men need. But Boaz is not arrogant. His wealth has not made him a jerk. His wealth has not made him insensitive. His wealth is simply that. It's his wealth. He owns his wealth. His, el his wealth doesn't own him. And that's what we see here with Boaz. He's a man who views himself as a steward of God's resources. He is a man who fears the Lord. He has power, and yet he is gracious. And I will tell you, church, those two things are rare and unusual. To be both a powerful individual, but also a gracious individual. And again, we won't track this trail here, but how do we do that? We, just like we've talked about Ruth and her character, how do we be someone who has influence? We have experienced and tasted of God's blessings. Listen, we stay humble under the mighty hand of God. We remember that there is nothing that we have that we have not received. We do not compare ourselves, as Paul tells the church at 1 Corinthians, do not compare yourself by yourself, for that is not wise. For what do you have, Paul says, that you did not first receive? And friends, that's the secret to humility, particularly in this context. As we look at Boaz, as we think about men and women who God has been seen to bless in their labors and their businesses, we see that he's a man of power and graciousness, which is a very unusual combination, but I would also say is normal among the disciples of Jesus. It's normal among not just the professors of Jesus, it's normal among the true disciples of Jesus. Now let's consider just for a moment his interactions, his manner, you could say, not only with his men, but secondly, we'll also see with, with the women of the field. Now the context here is that the men belong to him. These are his day laborers, Day laborers were those who were not slaves or bond servants, but they were simply those who needed to work. And each day they would come and say, I'm ready to work, Boaz. And at the end of the day, Boaz would pay them for that day's work. It's where we get the, the, the phrase, an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. We see his manner with the men. Now, notice here in the text, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, verse 8, and said to the reapers, the Lord, excuse me, not verse 8, excuse me, uh, looking, I lost my track, I don't have it in my notes here. Um, yes, there in the text, Boaz comes, verse, yes, in verse 6, he comes, in verse 5, excuse me, then Boaz said to his servants, who was in charge of the reapers, whose, whose woman is this, and he comes and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Now, what we notice here is that Boaz is not ashamed of the Lord. Basic point, but friends, we, we, we cannot go quickly by it. He is not ashamed of Yahweh. Now, when we're in church on Sunday, when we're in this type of setting, this point might be lost on you if you're not tracking with me or listening carefully. But it is not lost in our daily experience. This point has power of, of application and conviction. As we see the example of Boaz, as we think about he's not ashamed of the Lord. Friends, are we ashamed of the Lord? Like, think about this. You can say, we'll just make the metric or the application in this way. How often is the language of Boaz on my lips? Do I say to those that I meet, that those that I work with, now, I don't have people under me, per se, other than overseeing the affairs of the church with the fellow elders, just trying to give some practical application here. But anyone within our sphere of influence, do I say, the Lord be with you today? Before we talk business, before we talk about accounting, before we talk about updates on the, the, the agrarian context here, before we be godly men who are aware of the state of our flocks, is the first thing out of our lips, the Lord be with you. 
Now, I know this is interesting, is it? Because we have ways of communicating. Humor, appropriate. We have ways of joking. Uh, hopefully not ways of cursing and blessing people out. Hopefully not. The Lord leads you to repentance if that's your style and, and your way. But you think about on a job site. I, I think I'm losing you guys. Like, you're looking at me like, like a calf looking at a new gate. Like, you don't understand anything that I'm saying. Imagine with me, track with me, like we're, we're, we're in Walmart. Or, or wherever or we're, we're in, uh, you're, wherever you work, we're at ORNL, we're at Y12, we're in the local middle school, and we walk in and we say, hey, good morning, the Lord be with you today. That's, that's unusual. Like, that we don't talk like that, but why not? Th- this, is, this is an example of someone who's walking in the fear of the Lord. Not only is the steps of Boaz being ordered by the Lord, Boaz recognizes that. Boaz gives credence to that, but there's much more here. This is a blessing statement. What is this language here? The Lord be with you. Well, the first thing we see in his manner towards his men is that Boaz is not ashamed of the Lord. In fact, you could say it like this. He's inviting the sacred presence of Yahweh into the ordinary. Now, this is a game changer church. I'm going to say that again. Boaz is inviting into the ordinary the sacred presence of God. Now, God's presence is there. But Boaz is giving cognizance to it, recognition to it. In fact, I would tell you this, this is the biblical ethic. Friend, in the Christian life, we do not live with the dichotomy of this is sacred, my work or my home or shopping or the ordinary rhythms of life. That's all secular. This is how I, where we just operate like the rest of the world. And then the sacred is right now on Sunday morning. No, 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 no. Listen, the biblical ethic is that all of life, is sacred. The biblical ethic recognizes that not only is God's present here with us, we recognize it. And when we recognize it, it changes us. It changes how I talk to people. It changes how I interact with people. It changes um, the, the, the level of kindness that I display to the one and others. It changes my work. It changes how I go about things. You can say it like this. To the Christian, everything is sacred. Everything's an opportunity. Everything is a sacrifice of praise. Do you understand what I'm saying here, church? May the Lord, by His Spirit, apply this to us. And I'm not saying you have to walk out of this building today and to everyone you see begin to say in vain repetition, the Lord be with you today, the Lord be with you today, the Lord be with you today. But there's a reality where this stands in stark contrast to how we talk. And I think it's rooted in the knowledge of God. Proverbs language, in the fear of the Lord, the, in the, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. Here we see Boaz is walking in the fear of the Lord. He is a man of wisdom. But this language also points us to the fact that there is a, a benediction taking place. This is, if you remember, what we say often here on Sundays. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, the ironic blessing. Boaz says to his reapers, the Lord be with you today. Aaron says to the people of Israel, the Lord bless you, keep you, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That's what we call praying a prayer of blessing over one another. And that's what Boaz is doing. He says to his reapers in a summarized way, The Lord bless you today. I pray God's richest blessings upon you. May the God of heaven bless you and meet your needs. Do they laugh about him behind his back? No. Do they smirk and be like... There goes Boaz again. No, look at verse 4. What do they say? And they answered him, the Lord bless you. This is the impact of a godly life, church. 
This is the impact of not just empty words, but this is the impact of a life that has substance, of a life that not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. And so we see this reciprocal blessing being given back to Boaz from his, from his men. And I'll say this quickly. There, I think there's a note here of the sovereignty of God that they recognize. There's a practicality to it. If God doesn't bless him, then they're not going to be blessed in their labors. This is, there's a sense of self-preservedness that, that is natural and normal. Not only spiritually, the Lord bless you too, Boaz, and we mean it. But, Lord, but if God doesn't bless you, then we don't have our day laboring jobs. We're out to pasture. We're out to the creek. And then we see Boaz's manner, not only towards his men, but I say here, the women. There's a context here that, yes, maybe some of them are in his employment, but we can understand that from Ruth's example, there's also a presence of what following that, that law of the gleaning. There are the stranger, there is the widow, there is the orphan that, are, that is present there. And so we see his interest in Ruth beginning in verse 5. How does he go about it? He asks his foreman, he says, whose young woman is this? One author says here, the importance of inflection is important. You could render it like this, whose young woman is this? As if there's something wrong with her. Or you can read it in the interest of romantic interest, whose young woman is this? She obviously, inflection matters, she obviously has his attention. Literally in the Hebrew, he's saying, wow. Verse 8, just kidding, just kidding. I think, I think y'all took that seriously for a second. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, he says, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go on, do not keep looking for more. I have enough to provide for you. And I have that interest. In other words, I think what we see here is not only his, he does have a romantic interest that's not necessarily being vocalized. I think some of this is who he is, but we will not deny there's a providential bringing together. But he wants her to know, I have a concern for you. Do not go and glean another field, nor go from here. This is the second time that Ruth has been called, in the sense of family terms, a daughter. Naomi's already referenced to her as a daughter. Now we see that Boaz comes to her, and is the normal language of the day, not to ruin the, the romance here, or language. It was very normal for a man that was much older, like Boaz was. Again, if you remember, we estimate he's probably about 55, older than Ruth being maybe about 25. Completely normal in this day and age, as we think about uh, the practices of the Jews and, and God bringing people together. We can think of in Matthew chapter 1, God bringing Joseph and, and Mary together. But the point I want to make is that it illustrates, as we think about, Ruth is now considered a daughter. She's a part of the family of, of Israel. This language is being used now for the second time. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 19, 29, that everyone who's left houses and brothers and sisters Everyone who's left their father or their mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake, key clause there to understand the context, for my namesake as a disciple shall receive a hundredfold. And here we see Ruth in her confessional statement, your God will be my God. Wherever you go, chapter 1, verse 6, again, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. Here we see God beginning by his unseen providential hand, bringing Ruth to Boaz, beginning to pour out his blessings upon her. Let me just remind all of us that God is no man's debtor. 
and may it be completely out of our testimony. May our testimonies never be such of what I did for Jesus. Like in the sense of, I left this to be a disciple of Jesus. I left a lucrative career, or I left this business, or I left this opportunity, or I left this scenic Hawaii idyllic home to go be a missionary for Jesus in the slums of India. In other words, like as if the good life was back there, and now we're just slaving for Jesus. Friend, no, 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 listen. I would, your, your, your testimony is suspect, if that's your language, but I'll say this. God is no man's debtor. He's certainly not going to be Ruth's debtor. And here we see he begins to, to pour out his blessings upon her. Now notice in verse 8, remember this, that Boaz is a type of Christ. We're not yet to the point of the kinsman redeemer, but he's already being introduced to us as a, as a type of Christ. And we see in verses 8 and 9, his initiative. This is his loving initiative that he begins to give to Ruth and begin to give her wisdom. He begins to give her guidance. He says, have I not commanded, verse 9, the young men not to touch you? What does he mean by that? This is not saying Boaz locking down the market uh, for other eligible suitors. This is Boaz knowing as what is common understanding that a, a, a stranger, a young woman like Ruth would be subjected to all types of unspeakable crimes in, in these, these vast fields. Happened all the time. Boaz knows the lay of the land. He knows human nature. He knows the type of day laborers at times who come and pass through the land. He knows what happens. He knows fallen human nature. And he wants her to know, I'm protecting you. I've told the other young men not to touch you. And you can render, we're not going to go into detail here with our mixed congregation, but literally to physically harm you. And he, so he tells her, he gives this, this instruction. He says, and when you are thirsty, go to, the vessels, go, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Why does he say that? He has an interest for her, her well-being. He wants her to have it stack on top of the labors of the young men. This is with his blessing. He wants them to do the work. And he wants her to be able to experience that, preserving her. He, he, he has an interest in helping her, preserving her. He has empathy with her lot. In fact, this effect, verse 10, absolutely humbles Ruth. Because this is sudden. She started out saying, maybe I can find someone who will let me do some work. And now she's absolutely humbled and crushed, if you will, by the grace of Boaz. So she says, verse 10, so she fell on her face. And bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now, we're going to close this morning with the answer to the question that we asked last Sunday night. And I'm curious, well, I'm not going to ask that. I'm not going to set myself up for failure. Does anybody remember that question? But the question was simply this. Why did Boaz have a heart that was drawn towards Ruth? That's a legitimate question. Why did Boaz have a heart that was drawn towards Ruth? Was it her, her beauty? Was it her excellence? Was it her, her spirit? Was it her work ethic? Was it her deference and respect that she shows as a stranger and not arrogance? And I would say we could go through a long list here. And I think all of these are true, by the way. I don't think any of these things are untrue. But I don't think necessarily any of those things are the origin to why he has a heart bent towards not only surveying the fields, but he sees this stranger 
this young woman he's only heard about, and yes, she has an excellent spirit. Yes, she's a hard worker. Yes, she's beautiful. Yes, she's respectful, and on and on the list goes. But I want you to turn with me to the Ruth chapter 4. And for our purposes this morning, to try to bring our, our message, to bring the plane to, the, to, the, um, to a landing, look with me in Ruth chapter 4, and notice with me verse 17. Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. Also the neighbor women of Bethlehem gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. Now, Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Amminadab. And Amminadab begat Nashon. And Nashon begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz. And Boaz begat Obed. Now hang tight with me. Notice there with me in verse 21, chapter 4. Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed. What we see here is the genealogy. There's a man named Salmon. And Salmon is the father of Boaz. And Boaz is the father of a son named Obed that God will give. I don't want to reveal too much. I know you already know the story, but we just want to take this in stride here. Now, to bring it all together, go with me over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we're answering this question, why does Ruth have this, why has she gathered or garnered Boaz's attention? Turning to Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to notice with me verse 4. We're just picking up right in the middle of the genealogy that's listed here in Matthew chapter 1. We begin verse 4. Now, Ram begot Amminadab. Amminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Remember who's Salmon? Salmon is Boaz's dad. Then verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Wait a second. Who? Rahab. Yeah. That Rahab. Now, last Sunday, if you were here, we, we looked at, and when we came to Ruth chapter 1, we talked about Ruth's confessional statement that I read just a few moments ago. It's just beautiful. You can't read it too much, right? Your God shall be my God. We said, when we came to that, we said, this is a confessional statement. Ruth has heard of Yahweh. Now she is trusting in Yahweh. Now she is following Yahweh. She is a disciple. So why is it that Boaz has a heart towards someone like Ruth, who's been described for us as a stranger, a Moabitess, under the weight of the law, an outsider, on and on we can go. And the reason is, is Boaz is not just like any other man. Boaz has a story too. And Boaz's mom is named Rahab. If you remember from Joshua chapter 1, Rahab is Rahab the harlot, who lived in Jericho. She was a stranger. The weight of the law was against her. She had no hope. She was absolutely without hope until Joshua, by God's sovereign providence, sent spies, two spies, to, to lay out the land. Now, wait a second. You telling me that, yes, God's redemptive purposes are always happening. 
even when he's working here to lead his people, even as he's saying Joshua, he leads Joshua to, to survey the land, and even as he sends two spies in the language of Ruth, and it so happened that Ruth came upon the field of Boaz, and it so happened in Joshua chapter 1 that two spies came upon the, the home of Rahab. No, friends, none of these things are just happenstances. These are all the sovereign hand and grace of God. And so Boaz, because of his own story, his mother was a stranger. His mother was an outsider. There's no telling what all Boaz went through. Now, I'm not trying to demonize the people of Israel. Don't get me wrong, but I'm trying to enter into human nature. I'm trying to enter into the human experience. And what we can see here is that I'm sure out of all the things is that Boaz's path was not an easy one because of his mother. Yes, a recipient of grace. Yes, uh, welcome to the family life of Israel, but we can say this at an irreducible minimum. Boaz had an interest and immediately spotted Ruth because he identified with her lot. He identified with her story, and the more he identified and the more he began to look, no doubt his heart began to follow his, his footsteps, and he began to fall in love with this stranger that God began to bring into Israel. Friends, what an amazing story, and I think if we took the time this morning, and I pray that maybe as you leave this place, and as you go, and I, I pray that you'll take the time to think about your life, and don't let God's hand of providence be lost on your life, and all, there's many things that I think if, if you would open God's word and spend some time reading it and praying and just thinking about his hand of grace in your life, God would begin to show you things that you've never taken the time to, to see before. Now, we're not all Rahab's and, and, and Ruth's in, in the sense of we have a role in God's redeeming, unfolding drama of redemption. But friends, we are in the sense of sinners saved by grace. In that way that we are. And I pray that we will afresh and anew have eyes that are enlightened spiritually to see that God is faithful. That God is the God of the impossible. That oftentimes with our human eyes of flesh, we look at people and we say, yeah, there's no future for them. There's no way God could use them. And friends, let your mouth be stopped. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. We have no idea what God is going to do through people, what he can do through people. And uh, we can see his hand of goodness and grace and how he has worked in bringing us to himself. Well, I hope you join us this evening at 6 p.m. as we continue to unfold this wonderful story, this romance of redemption. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that you had mercy upon us. May we never, ever, Lord, in all that we believe, would it not lead to arrogance or pride or a sense of self-worth. Lord, we just want to pray. I, I want to pray a pastoral prayer over our church just, just now because of our study. Would you continue to grow grace into a spirit of love and humility? Father, you've been so kind to our church. You've been faithful to our church. And Lord, we pray just as a prayer of coming before your word that we would have hearts that are sacred, eyes that are sacred, that our biblical ethic and our service for the Lord is not one of drudgery, but one of delight, one that invites God and his presence into everything that we do. Father, that we would never be removed from the hope of the gospel. Father, we need it for salvation, but the gospel is an item of first importance 
for our Christian life, for our sanctification. And we pray that you would grow us in the power of the gospel, but in a spirit of humility. Father, would we rehearse maybe over the next few hours this afternoon, after lunch, and as we spend some time with you, maybe, Lord, set aside some time to reflect upon your graciousness. The world wants us to just go, 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 go. Busy, 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 busy. But Lord, this day is a gift to us. When we set it apart, we take stock and account of our soul, the affairs of our family, the salvation of our children, as we worship with your people. And I pray that as we do that today, Lord, that you would draw our hearts to see your gracious hand of providence in our lives and how you have brought us to yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.